we often talk about being poor as if, if, as if there's a, an honour in it, right? Being poor is grinding. Let's, let's release people from that. And capitalism has set many more people out of poverty than any other system we, we yet know of. Have you noticed that black people on the right don't abuse black people on the left, but black people on the left abuse black people on the right? You know what I mean? We're, we're not black enough, we're the wrong kind of black. We're, we're coconuts, we've given in, we're slaves. It means that white people on the left feel that they can abuse as well. Mm. Mm. So I remember I had a Labour MP call me a, a token, um, token ghetto boy. Imagine a Republican or a Conservative MP, Senator, whatever, said those words. People would be calling for their head. You might hate your boss, but he was the one who risked the money to make your job. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't you. You're going to have to... As do. we explain to our staff yeah, every yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We owe tons of money to China where we should have probably built that financial partnership elsewhere in the world with people who are much more aligned with our thinking, who are much less out to dominate the world. I think the difference between India and China, say, India wants to be a big, powerful country. They don't want to be your boss. China wants to be your boss. Hey, Francis, are you worried about inflation? Absolutely, mate. Every time I eat dairy, it smells me right up. That's bloating, not inflation. What's the difference? Neither is good for you, and they both leave you feeling devalued. Bosh. Absolutely atrocious. If you are worried about actual inflation and need impartial advice as to how to survive the economic crisis, then Fortune and Freedom is for you. Fortune and Freedom is published by South Bank Investment Research and is for the investor looking to access a wide range of informed opinions on lots of different investing opportunities. Their brilliant newsletter covers everything from causes and the impact of inflation to the rise of cryptocurrencies, gold investing, and much more besides. Through their daily news commentary and special reports, Fortune and Freedom can give you more confidence in making informed decisions about what to do with your money. Simply go to fortuneandfreedom.com. That's fortuneandfreedom.com and sign up for a free newsletter that will help your money work for you. The link is in the description. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a former mayoral candidate for this very city of London. Sean Bailey, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's really great to have you on, man. So I'll let people in on a little bit of insight into how we met. We were doing TV together and we got chatting in the green room. And we don't really have politicians on this show because uh, we don't believe that they're going to be honest, honest conversations. We don't think that's likely to happen with a politician. But you and I had a very blunt and straightforward chat about some interesting things. And I thought this guy's got some really cool things to say and he's actually prepared to say them. Before we get into them, though, tell everybody who are you, how are you, where you are, what has been your journey through life that leads you here? Before I answer that question, yeah. I'll tell you why. I'll tell your, your audience why politicians aren't real, because we punish them when they are. True. And everywhere in the world, we have the politicians we deserve. And if we want better politicians, we shouldn't punish the ones who try to tell us the truth. I think that's an important thing. In the Western world in particular, what we've done is give so much of our responsibility to politicians 
that we then can get away with stuff. Like the state of our children is not our politicians' fault, as our fault, and we need to take responsibility for that. By abusing them, it means that we can we can put our hands up and sort of walk off and say it's not our fault. And I think it's really important that, especially younger generations, realise you have to take responsibility for the world that you want. If you look at Britain, for instance, Britain is a great nation and has been great for a very long time. It wasn't politicians that made Britain great. It's actually civic activity that made Britain great. And civic activity means that the civilians in the piece have to get involved. But that's my well, rant. So yeah. just before you go on though, I couldn't agree with you more. It's the ethos of how we think about these things as well. And I think people are now getting the sense of why this is going to be a great conversation. Anyway, who are you? Uh, apart <laughs> from that, so so what's been going on in my youth? So I'm a father of two. I'm married to Ellie. I have Aurora and Joshua as my children, 13 and 15. I'm a Londoner, born and bred. I come from West London, Labrick Grove, around that area. Um, I, I grew up in a single parent family. Um, we were very poor, but very happy. Um, I never really realised I was poor until I was sort of, sort of into senior school and then like because everybody around me was poor none of us had anything and we were so ecstatically happy most of the time i didn't realize it's only when we went to school and you started thinking i can't afford a cap or jumper those boys are wearing farrahs they're like mum could i have farrahs absolutely not you're gonna have the plastic school trousers and you're gonna love them <laughs> so, and, and that experience was very important for me because it gave me a slightly different take on the rich poor thing i i i had much less envy about it it just felt like a problem that needed to be solved I'd like to believe what's driving me is good outcomes for people, um, including myself and my family, but not just pure money, because I think that changes how you interact with the world. It delivers a different kind of fear. And I say all those things because that let me do what I really wanted to do. So as I grew up, I got very involved in youth work. I then went on and set up my own youth work charity. And I was able to have the conversations with my local community that the social services and the local council either couldn't have or didn't know they needed to have. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that. The greatest things I've ever done is family therapy. And basically I just delivered people to family therapy. My job club, because it gave the people around me an income to do with what as they pleased. And I ran a football club. I literally don't know the, the rules of football even now. <laughs> but what it meant was I could get at the time, which was our biggest issue to my mind, fathers and sons, and by extension, families together to build their own resilience, their own stories to pass on. And I really, really enjoyed that. And, and it looks like my community did. But all of those activities were what pushed me to politics. Yes, I'm an elected conservative politician. I've stood for parliament twice. I ran for mayor um, year before last. But if you, I would like to believe if you spoke to me for more than 30 seconds, I'm not what you think a conservative politician is, but actually I am what a conservative is. I believe in country, I believe in family, I'm a church goer, you know, I mean, I pray and, and, and run around and sing hymns and all that jazz. And I do those things because I live in a country where you're allowed to, and I believe that you should be allowed to do that. My neighbour is a Muslim and me and him have great fun. Our neighbour across the road is, is a Hindu and, and we celebrate all of our, all of our holidays as it were. And we do that because we're in this country, which is a Western country that allows you to do that. My son, who's, who's 11 at the time, said something really great to me. He said, I love to party. I said, why is that? He says, and have a party. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And it's yeah. a whole idea that because we're, you know, rolling around in other people's culture, we can take some of the strength from, from that. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I like that. And, and, but I wasn't born in that situation. I grew to that situation through going through life. Like my first mentor was a man called Baron Hume, who was an 
absolute socialist. He's a socialist, but he's one of the greatest people I've ever met because he wasn't trying to make me a socialist. All he ever used to do is point out why he's a socialist. And he used to ask me questions that he thought needed solving poverty, you know, redistribution, and ask me how I would want to solve them. He challenged me to do that rather than tell me his political belief is the way. And I forever am grateful for that, forever grateful. And what you were talking about there is, is so interesting, Sean, because, you know, you're a conservative politician, but I would think that if you ask most conservative politicians what conservatism is, I don't think they'd be able to answer you. And if they do give you a, an answer, it's not going to be an honest one. Well, let's check if I can answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's the um, look, for me, conservatism has two, potentially three areas that you need to focus on. One is the technical conservatism, small government, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. I believe in things like marriage. I believe in things like education. I believe in... in, 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 in Capitalism, for want of a better term. Now, do I think capitalism has all the answers? No. Mm. I, I remember a guy saying to me, are you a Thatcherite? No, but I believe she did the right thing in the wrong way. Making a strong community, um, both family and financial, gives you the freedom to explore things. Like, being poor, we often talk about being poor as if, if, as if there's a, an honour in it, mm. right? Being poor is grinding. Let's, let's release people from that. And capitalism has set many more people out of poverty than any other system we, we yet know of. And that's why I think conservatism, small government, innovation, entrepreneurs, letting people keep their money, all of that stuff's important. And if you flip over to the social side, I would say that conservatism is about the responsibility of adults. If you see what's happening in most of the Western world, they're infantilizing adults, and by turn, we then infantilize our children even more. The strongest communities in the world have a few things in common. One is they're financially stable. Mm -hmm. Two is they're far away from the government. They don't need the government. They're basically, most of their interaction with the government's around tax and, and the law. And I think thirdly, they take responsibility for the education of their children. Now, I don't mean you should educate your children in a vacuum, but you should make sure that your children are being educated and you should check, and you have the right to check what that education is. You know. I sometimes worry that in the Western world, we are taking all of that education into the formal system, which means that parents have no say on how their children are educated, which is wrong because in our tradition and in our legal system, you are legally responsible for your children. So therefore you should be intimately wrapped up in what they're learning. And, and sure, you touch on something that I've been present to for a long time now, which is, I kind of feel like whenever anything happens in our country, whatever that problem is now, we always now as a society look to government to solve the problem. And, and I'll tell you where well, that's a problem. So I had a very interesting conversation with a guy on a bus. I love randomly speaking to London. Mm -hmm. it, it's great. It's half the reason I ran for mayor of London. More people recognize me and are willing to have that conversation. And we were talking about, you know, what, what has the government done? What has the government done? What has the government done? So we're actually talking about drug dealing or that. And I said, the government's relationship with drug dealing is law enforcement. That's it, right? Your relationship with drug dealing is, do you buy drugs? Do you have the people in your family buy drugs? What about the children world? So I said to him, what have you done about drug dealing in your area? And he said, nothing. And, and you see the bell go on in his head. Oh, he's like, oh, what do you mean? And I said, exactly. Like, if we, as the adults in our own world and in our children's life, don't do something about the prevalence of drug dealing, mm -hmm. nobody can. 
Nobody can. And he said, yeah, you're right. And we had a big conversation about nobody grasses and all the rest of that. I said, exactly. So if we're to save our children and our neighborhoods from something like that, we have to do something about that. I remember when I, I used to be special advisor to the Prime Minister. I, I probably should have mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be special ed advisor to the Prime Minister. In, in what area? In, in, in youth and crime and just across the piece. Because David Cameron was very interested in my take on most things because he saw I, I, I have no white middle class guilt, mm. yeah, which, you know, helps in certain situations because I'm looking at it purely from the effect. And my politics, I'd like to believe, is of poorer people. How do people who need to work keep working, get ahead, have a life? So I, I was often asked, what do you think about this? Should the government be doing that? And the government should do plenty, but it should always remember that it's there to enable not deliver. And I used to say to David, if, if we seek to do everything for families, we will weaken those communities. The community you come from, David, does mostly everything for itself. Now we all think that's because it has financial means and that is true, but it's also because it has the confidence and the historical timeline of doing it itself. Because you can get the poorest immigrant communities in this country and they do almost everything for themselves. And then you look at second and third generation, and then you have to figure out how much has this idea that the government should do everything infiltrated that community. And when you've, when you've indexed that, you can directly see how well that community's performed. So I'll give you an idea. The Indian community generally, particularly in London, is very independent, very go ahead. And you've seen that in their, in their level of sickness, in their level of income, everything. They are a strong, cohesive community going ahead because they have taken charge. They haven't fallen into that left-wing thing of, well, we'll wait for the government to save us. Mm. Because the government isn't going to save you. And the other thing I'd say to people watching this, no government has any money. It's your money, your money, not theirs, your money. And when you view it in that way, it makes you ask different questions. Different. In my world, I would send everybody a bill right, of what the government has been paying for with their tax return right, and see how happy they are. I, I, I bet you the public would ask significantly different questions. And you say that you don't have white middle class guilt, which means that you can approach subjects in, I'll say probably a far more honest and objective way. What, what does white middle class guilt stop us seeing or stop us de what problems does it stop us dealing with effectively? The generality of white middle class guilt means that you're so busy from a right, from a, from, from a sort of place of trying to help, trying to do things for a community that you wouldn't do to your own, you know? And you, you make provisions for a community that feel good, but you don't have that problem in your community. So I'll give you an example. I remember when Tony Blair changed the law that your 14-year-old daughter could have an abortion without you knowing. That is absolutely mental. Mental, mental, mental. You're responsible for this child, morally, physically, legally. They're going through one of the biggest situations that any human being can go through, and they're allowed not to tell you. So if your daughter got up that morning and said she's not going to school, you're screaming get to school, get to school, she's had an abortion and you don't know. I mean, come on. But the reason he could do that, because someone had convinced them all that, you know, children are sexually active, things these happen, you can't number them with a child. But he hadn't realised that the children in his community, that doesn't happen to them. Yeah, children in other communities, it does happen to them. And by divorcing them from their parents, you increase the likelihood that that will happen. You don't decrease it. So it's a difference between dealing with the symptom or a, 
or, or the unintended consequences of something that you've done. In another, I'll give another example. I remember when Black Lives Matter came to prominence, mm -hmm. right? White middle-class guilt meant that white people didn't scrutinize what Black Lives Matter was about, a Marxist organization. And that's great if you agree and you've looked at it. And I remember when I said, I'm not really on board here, black and white people freaked out. And I distinctly remember, and, and I use the word, a brother stopped me in the street because he said it to me that he's a brother. And why I liked the way he approached me, because he was basically saying, look, as black people, we need to come together. We've got a fight here. I said, that's great. But do you feel like these people are forward in the fight? I said, what do you mean? I said, as far as I'm concerned, if I had a magic wand and could do anything for any community, particularly the black community, I would strengthen family structure. Family, as you know, the sort of 2.4 children version of it, is the single strongest financial institution we've ever had on this planet thus far. Mental institution as well, and quite frankly fun. Everybody, black, white, young, old, gay, straight, comes from some version of a family. In the black community in particular, particularly in Britain, our family structure has been decimated. More than 60% of black children grow up in a single parent family. And that's important for many reasons. But one I'll highlight is if you come from a single parent family, you're that much more likely, significant more likely, five times more likely to grow up in poverty, right? So for me, that's, that's enough of a reason to try and eradicate that, yeah? Forget what that was. And I said, on the Black Lives Matter website, their stated aim is to destroy the nuclear family. And I said to him, do you agree with that? And he looked in my boat, he was stunned because believe you me, he knew his stuff because he was coming from a place that I recognise of, of righteous black anger. I get that, I understand that. But he, he just, he was like, well, what does that mean? I said, it means what it says on the tin. And unless somebody else says it means something different, I, ca I can't support that. Because you and I know that we collectively and individually would do better if our family structured better. So either they don't understand our problems or their goal is not for us, but either way, I'm not on board. And his reaction to me was so emotional that he made me feel like, this be clear, he didn't tell me I was right, but his reaction made me feel confident because in the newspaper, I was being destroyed on that, yeah? But it's a case of, Sometimes in public life, you have to be brave. So the decision is, do I be brave? Do I hide? Or do I absolutely just, you know, join in? And this for me was so important. I kind of decided to be brave, but he gave me the opportunity to test, to, to go a bit further with that. Cause then subsequent weeks, months and years, I was continually asked the question. Cause obviously people are now trying to use that to trip me up because Black Lives Matter was gaining great prominence. But what was interesting in, what was really interesting to me, black people would question me about it. They wouldn't just destroy me. So those who just destroyed me about it, they were never coming my way. In that instance, they were never gonna vote for me. But I was it was a sort of 80-20 thing. 20% people just immediately destroyed you. 80% of people wanted to know why. And I think myself and other people challenging Black Lives Matter has changed what they've had to do and changed people's orientation to it. Mm. It's really, really interesting, Sean, the, the, the point that you were making there. The thing that I don't get is just when you see an, a black person or an Asian person, well, basically an ethnic minority come out and espouse conservative values and say, I'm conservative, this is the way that I think, the racial abuse that they get from the left 
is, is worse than anything that I've seen in years. And bear in mind, I grew up in London, South London in the 80s. So I've seen when race, when, you know, BMP pub down the road and, you know, getting to, going with my cousin to watch a football and we got chased because he's brown. I've seen that. But look, <laughs> I mean, where do I start? So I remember someone, so I've had, if you watched my Twitter feed, mm. I, I remember someone from the press writing a thing about Twitter and racist games on Twitter. And she said, I looked at your Twitter feed and I'm astonished. You get as much racist abuse from black people as you do white. She, she was stunned by this. And I said, there's two ways of looking at this, right? One, a black person who's desperate to wrench your, you know, wrench you sort of emotionally in a direction knows that our race in the context of Britain, in the context of the Western world is very important to us because it has defined a great deal of our history. And another black person won't realise that they've been trained to do it by people on the left. So I remember saying to a, a, a group of students, have you noticed that black people on the right don't abuse black people on the left, but black people on the left abuse black people on the right? You know what I mean? We're, we're not black enough, we're the wrong kind of black, da 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 da, da. We're, we're coconuts, we've given in, we're slaves. And, and, and there was a bit of a revelation in the room and then everybody's testing it, trying to prove it, trying to find people doing it and all the rest of that. And I said, look, it's the kind of really insidious, powerful racism that makes black people useful idiots. Because what white people can do, they can stop us as a group of people having any kind of decent conversation, right? Because they can get you to tell me that I'm the wrong kind of black or I'm not black. I don't understand what it is to be black, right? What black people should be able to do is what white people do. You know, Russians, Spanish, I don't know, Italians, everybody does. They'll have a conversation about themselves and about anybody else without the influence of other people. And, and, Having that conversation, has, is an, has, that is an ongoing cross to bear, mm. an ongoing cross to bear. It's been, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's left a real big footprint in, in my public and political life because what it also means is, it means that white people on the left feel that they can abuse you as well. Mm. Mm. So I remember I had a Labour MP call me a, a token, um, token ghetto boy. Yeah, imagine for a second, anybody watching this, right, who understands, you know, um, conservative Labour politics or maybe Republican um, and Democrat politics, imagine a Republican or a conservative MP, Senator, whatever, said those words. People would be calling for their head, yeah? She said it's fine. But why it's really, really disgraceful, because what it says to young people, black or otherwise, in the, in the public sphere, as it says, if you're black, yeah, don't you dare go towards the right. If you go towards right, we will separate you from the people you love and care for. So what it then means, if you're black, it's much easier to just keep to yourself, not expose any of you, and it cuts black people off from half of the sort of political theory and belief systems in the world. And, and I'm one of those people who think, no one system has it all right. So therefore you need to scrutinize them all to cherry pick and they're cutting you off from half. They don't have the right to decide how you think. That is terrible, yeah. absolutely terrible. I, I, I agree completely. And, and Sean, uh, I, it's funny you were talking right at the beginning about things that you don't often hear politicians talk so much about, which is Britain's a great country that you're proud of and you like and so on. And I feel the same, first generation immigrant. I love this place. I think it's great in many ways. And at the same time, we do have a lot of problems at the moment too. So how do we, how do we make sure that we, we are fulfilling on our potential as a country? I think the big sweep of it is to 
in the first place, like ourselves. My problem with the public discourse of the left now is all based on the fact that we're idiots. Yeah, the British goings on, historical, current and future, we're all idiots. I remember someone telling me that we can't have a British Bill of Rights, we can't leave the, the, the ECR and all the rest of it. And I had to point out to them, you see when the Europeans wanted to do something around human rights, who did they call? They called us. They literally called British lawyers. We literally invented human rights. Now you can tell me we may have had the biggest need in the world to invent <laughs> human rights, but the point is we did. Mm. And they trusted us to write that bill. It was largely done by British judges and lawyers. We did it. So the idea that we have somehow forgotten that and we won't know what to do when we're on our own is utter nonsense. Actually, there's a good chance we'll do a much better job. Actually, that's actually what will happen because we'll have much less influence. And all the conversations we're having about um, representation of women, um, gender representation, excuse me, um, LGBT, race and that, we are basically the only people in the world having that conversation. Correct. There is no one in Korea or, or Japan or even places like Italy or, or, or France, they're not doing the hand wringing we are. And what that shows you is it's a live issue for us. It probably always will be a live issue for us, but we do the work, we make the progress. And that's just one arena. And I say that because we have to believe a little bit more in ourselves. If you look at the nations in the world, like Singapore or Japan, who are coming, even the French to a certain degree, they think they're right. They, 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 they largely like each other. French people think France is great. They'll talk about French history as if it's great, right? We need to step back and look at our history. And our history is checkered, but no more checkered than anybody else's. There is no nation on this world that has more than a fiver in its wallet, right? That doesn't have things that you could point to, right? I'm not saying we avoid them, I'm not saying we pretend they're not there, but it's not a reason to suggest that we're not of no value. And arguably, we've recovered at the greatest speed and have, and, have, and have less of a distance to go. And I think you've got to start there. We like us, because if you don't like yourself, it's hard to do anything positive going forward. And the other thing is just trust the system. And I go back to a statement I made early on, the greatest thing about this country is our civil organisations, mm. yeah? Let them test it, let them go around. And yes, we all hate politicians and we think parliament's nonsense and all the rest of that, but actually our system is definitely the best in the world. And the one very, very important thing about our adversarial system, all ideas are tested. Mm. It, the, the, if you're in China and you're high enough up the political scale, you have an idea, that's it. Yeah, here, even if you're the prime minister, it gets tested. And if you look back at our history, it's probably why we've made less lurching mistakes. There's been less self-harm of this country than most because our ideas are tested. And sometimes I see people on the left who want to shut down debate, you know, push people out. And I point them out. If we did that as a tradition, you wouldn't exist. Because largely this country has been conservative for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they didn't push out the, 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 the more sort of left-wing socialist debate. They had it. And that's why you exist. And that's why this country is strong. So if you push them out, what, what's going to happen? What, what is going to happen? And you show me any individual, any philosophy, any nation or any organisation that's been right about any, everything. And I'll show you a liar. Hey Francis, do you like locals? I live in London, mate, so obviously not. The only pleasure I get from the locals is when we share an intimate moment as we watch a Japanese tourist get trapped in a tube door. That is good. But I wasn't talking about the locals, 
I was talking about our community on Locals. You mean the one where you get phenomenal behind the scenes content when you like your space, where you get to ask incredible guests like Jordan Peterson, Brett Weinstein, Bill Burr, Sam Harris, Adam Carolla, Heather Hying, and others your questions? Not just that, you can get supporter-only benefits like trigonometry mugs, monthly calls with our other top supporters, and even a regular meal with me and Francis. You also get phenomenal behind-the-scenes footage of our trip to America, where we met a whole host of incredible guests and gave ourselves terminal indigestion. We're also starting to do monthly giveaways for locals only. The first one will be signed copies of Andrew Doyle's new book. Plus, you get access to an incredible community of like-minded people who share memes, have fun conversations, and most importantly, you get to make new friends. You can support us with as little as $7 or about five pounds a month, or give us more for the higher tier benefits. Go to trigonometry.locals.com. Go to trigonometry.locals.com and support the show. Well, I agree with you completely. And as you know, you've read a little bit of my book, which is we were talking about. And that that's kind of my message to people here as well. We've got to remember we're good people. We've done some bad. Our ancestors did some bad things like everybody else's ancestors. But if we want to have a positive vision of our country, we're going to have to believe in ourselves for sure. I think that's really important. And it's great to hear you say it. And at the same time, we've obviously got a lot of practical problems happening right now we've got we we our national debt is greater than our gdp mm. at a time when the government is about to give away people more money to help them with what is a legitimate crisis you know in terms of the cost of living and, and all of that how do you see this playing out now with with the particularly since 20, 2008 when we've printed so much money uh, we had record low interest rates we've got a massive national debt now we're having to deal with the war in ukraine the cost of living, all of that. How does Liz Trust survive, let alone thrive? <laughs> There's a couple of things I'd say. I think the world is up for is in in line for big correction. Our sort of historic round about five percent interest rate was workable. It was an interest rate that came from less debt, more interaction. People, and when I say people, I mean nations, the planet spent what it had. Um, move to the fiat system, create amounts of debt, finance, all the rest of that, and that just marching on. It can't... It's not sustainable. Yeah, it's not sustainable. And, and, and it's, 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 it, I remember talking to a, a kid at the bus stop and trying to explain to him about debt and what we're doing and, and, and elements of the environment. And I said, look, it's basically this. You're on a chocolate desert island and you have a choice. You can eat all the chocolate, not be hungry, but drown. Or you could be hungry, but still have the chocolate to stand on. Like we, there's a balance here. There's a balance here, and and I think we, we may have gone far as a planet, not just as a nation, too too far one way. When you bring it down to the sort of nation level, we are in as good a condition as anybody to deal with it. I'd argue if, if you ranked the world, we'd be in the top sort of five, 10% to deal with the problem. It's gonna be painful, but there's some big steps you can say, please stop printing money. Mm -hmm. the, the printing of money, I mean, I've never quite 
I'm not, even, I'm not even quite sure who gets that money because I didn't get any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean? just, yeah. Maybe if I got some of it, I'd be a little bit less against, you know, stopping. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. but that's not true though, is it, Sean? We all got a bit of it because we all got investment, more investment than there would have been in education and health and whatever. Like, we are just living beyond I, I, our I, means I, as I, a country. I'll tell you why I don't think we, we got any of it because we're living beyond our means. So right. every, everything that we've got, we're effectively going to have to give back. Well, our children will, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the experiences of my life for a little while, I, 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 I had bailiffs, I owed money to people. And somebody said to me, do I regret that? And my answer is no. And the reason I say no is because all of the debts I built up were to survive. There was no Ferrari debt in there, as I like to call it. There was no luxurious car. There wasn't even a flash coat in there, right? It was like, I was unemployed for a long time. I was homeless for a little while. It was like, if I don't do this, I'm sunk here. So I'd never regretted that debt. I wonder as a planet and as a country, could we say the same? And whatever happens, my grandmother used to say this, you're gonna have to pay it back. Mm. You're gonna have to pay it back. You're gonna. So we should always be planning our finances with that idea that it's gonna be, have to pay it back. And, 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 and I don't wish to be political, it's not my thing. I have to be asked to be political. But on the left, their response, if you see Keir Starmer's response to the cost of living crisis to the bill thing, is a sticking plaster. It's a. It's an. It's going to then need to be addressed again. I remember listening. But to, it's the same with Liz Truss. Yeah, but, but the difference with Liz Truss is the one functional difference that I think is important is giving the economy, giving individuals, giving business more of their money back. If you, if you, if you remember what I said at the very beginning, I believe in entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs make the planet in the broadest sense. It's people who take the risk. It's people who say. Actually, I think we need rubber. I know we could get some rubber. It's people who say this service would be of use to people who actually put their own money in. And by giving people back their money, right, we increase the, the propensity of people to become entrepreneurs from, a, from a, a spiritual level. We let people know that actually we appreciate people who take risk. There's, a, there's an economy to bother taking a risk in from a financial level. It's worth you doing this because you're going to get something back. The idea that we can all have the same outcome with a different input. You might hate your boss, but he was the one who risked the money to make your job. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't you, you can have to- As we explain to our staff yeah, every yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You no, might but, have to But this is that. the point, and like we found, as we've done this, as you know, we have employees now, and we are basically a small business. This is what the show is, right? It's, it's, I'm not going to lie to you. It's not the easiest place to run a business, no. Britain. But, but I, I, ironically, it is one of the easier places in the world, if only because yeah. of our ability to raise finance. But the one thing I will say, I, I said also in the, in the beginning, I'm a capitalist, but I don't believe it has all the answers. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I try to say it like this. Capitalism, right, works for pound coins. Its mechanism deliver pound coins. It's the human inside that has to make that pound coin do the right thing. You know what I mean? So we see lots of businesses in the world make so much money, right, but not involve in the profit the people who made that money, the staff. And note that I use the word profit because you can't pay people if you don't have it. Yeah, right. And one of the things that we've done a lot of is use public money to top up very poor businesses through tax credits. Now, if you receive tax credits, and I have in the past, keep going. I'm not suggesting we stop that. No, no. but what we should be saying to people is, you can only employ people if they actually have a viable business. 
We should make that the law rather than topping it up because they don't have a viable business. And the way to help people have a viable business is what? Take less of their money from them. Mm. If you're watching this now and you're a socialist, I get it. I understand because your socialism makes you feel kind and, and, and there is elements of kindness <laughs> in it. Right, I get it. But the unkind part of socialism is, right? the unworkable part of socialism, the crazy part of socialism is, where does the money come from? And I remember being at a debate with a Labour MP and he and I were just on completely different. It's fine. Everybody knew and it was fine. And he was a very decent man. And we, and we had a great, we had a great chat. But he said one of the most poignant things in the room that just made my point for me. He said, every time someone proposes a policy, they should tell us who, not only where, who they're taking the money from. And that's the point, isn't it? Because what happens in our big, rich Western world, it looks like, well, you can just charge the rich. And in many cases, that might be right. But what do they do? They then just cut off who they employ and it does us in. I, I remember speaking at a school and there was a lot of um, councils and stuff and it was all assaulting Tesco's and all the rest of that. You know, Tesco's big business, they don't need me to defend them. But I said, just, just one thing before you destroy Tesco's. And they're like, what's that? I said, they employ 300,000 people. So you destroy one business, but how many incomes do you destroy? I just, I just want you to bear that in mind. I'm not telling you Tesco's behaves ethically. I think particularly for small businesses, they should pay much more quickly than their whole 90 day model. But we are all interlinked and socialism often, you know, picks out a villain, pursues them and doesn't realize the, the connection that has to the rest of us. And, and that, that for me is, I mean, it's about education. It's about letting people know how money and finance and economies work. Sean, you made a very profound point at the beginning of this interview where you said, we get the politicians we deserve because we destroy politicians who tell us the truth. And I really agree with you. I think you nailed it on that. We've got this huge debt. And the reality is our living standards are going to have to go down in order to pay for this debt. That's what that means. What politician is going to be able to tell that to the British people and survive? None. You can't do that. I think that it's ironic because I think the last time politics was really, really honest was austerity. George Osborne basically said, if you vote for us, we're going to balance the books and that's going to be painful. Or you can vote for the other guy. And um, they vote for him and, and, and Cameron. And, and why that's important, because I really do believe in the intelligence of the swarm. The swarm in this country, the voting public, there is an intelligence there. They do get it. And I think politicians and all of us are relying on the public to understand we've got to, we've got to address this. Ironically, I think the pandemic is helping people realise something needs to be solved. You know, we, we dealt with the pandemic. If you agree with how it was done, whatever. But people do realise something was done. It costs and needs to be adjusted. Um, and also we need to have a conversation about what living standards are because there's other things we could do. So for instance, if the amount of money you pay to live, food, you know, roof overhead and all the rest of that, there's some places where a reduction in cost is, is so much more useful mm. than in another place, you know what I mean? Like having great amounts of disposal income is nice and that's what people chase, but actually having lower cost housing is probably much more important. If someone said to me, an extra grand a month, that's fine, as long as my housing doesn't cost me an extra £1,200 a month. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I think there's things the government can do to lower the, 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 the running costs of a person's life. I, I, I mean, when I was sofa surfing, one of the great revelations for me was, this is about lowering my costs. Like, you know what I mean? Like, 
making my trainers last longer. I used to walk one way to work and all the rest of that. I changed my shift pattern so that I could walk at night because it's just less hassle, less people, whatever. Do, 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 do you see what I mean? All that kind of stuff. And lowering my costs, we all know, it effectively increases what you're earning. We might have to do that on a national scale. And that's why I say, ironically, Boris's plan around nuclear and Liz's plan around tax, for me, are two of the big possibilities at repairing our standard of living as quickly as possible. But I can't really see a version of events where it isn't painful. And Sean, this inability to be honest with the public, is this where this counterproductive, deeply irresponsible policy of Western governments, not just in this country, but particularly somewhere like Germany, I've been talking about this for years, man. You can't make yourself energy dependent on your adversaries, right? But we've done that. We've done that in this country, we've done that, Germans have done it, lots of European countries have done it. Why, 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 why have these countries, our Western countries, made themselves dependent on Russia? Why, do we, why are we not energy sufficient? We're shipping factories and production to China where they emit all the same carbon dioxide. They just do it over there and we can say we're green. But look, there, there's, there's two. One is the broader piece of, of liberal arrogance. So liberals believe, you know, whoever these people are, 10 minutes with us and they'll be liberals too. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we'll just, we'll just tell them, but you're wrong, you're wrong. Mm. You know, starting a war and taking territory doesn't work. It upsets people, stop it, stop it. And we believe they'll think, oh, we were wrong all along. Why don't we do it deliberately? That's the real thing. We, you, you often hear in politics, we should be an example. We should be leading the way. I really want to say to people, right, who are liberals, nobody in Russia or anywhere else in the world gives a monkeys about what we do. We could be as green as we like. They're looking at the bottom line. They do not care what we do. They don't. They might care about the green issues, but they don't care how we get there. They're going to get there their own way. Simple as that. And the other piece was greed. So what people wanted to do was lower the cost of running their country, ship out some of the pain so they could keep going back to their populace and say, look how wonderful we are. We're keeping your cost of living down and um, we're making you green yeah, and not really tell the truth. You see it with some of the, the Nordic nations swapping to, to um, geopower and have electric cars all, the way, all, all over the place. But they did that through their oil money. <laughs> all the money they have from their sovereign wealth fund was made in oil and they made themselves green. And there is a hypocrisy there. And, you know, that self-congratulatory liberal pat on the back is, is, means that they won't acknowledge some of that's going on. And to make yourself energy dependent is to make the people of your country poor. Governments of all stripes should have spent more time building nuclear and wind and, and water. And I want to be clear to everyone, if you're watching this and you're green, right, I want to be very clear in the interim, and that means the next 30 to 50 years, we cannot have green power without nuclear. Because when there's no wind and when everybody turns their, their kettle on because EastEnders is having a break, right, yeah, solar and wind won't cover that. Nuclear power, you turn it up. It's simple as that. And if somebody telling you that, that um, nuclear power is dirty, ask them what we're going to do with all the batteries and all the mining from, from electric cars and solar power. Because solar power, wind power will need some kind of storage. That means batteries. That means some of the most horrific chemicals we have on the planet. And when, we're, when we are producing 20 and 30 million battery powered vehicles a year, what are we going to do with all that waste? And, and it changes how you, how you look at nuclear power. In the future, we, I, I believe we can get way, way, way down the line on fully renewable power. But the future, 
is a long way away. And in the meantime, you have a lot of very poor people that you have to keep warm and clothed. Now, if you're telling me your green credentials are worth more than their immediate comfort, I think you need to tell them that as well. It's, it's a very good point. We're looking and we're seeing an energy crisis and these bills that are coming out are, are absolutely horrendous just to look at. We had Nigel Farage in a few months ago, just before the Ukraine war. And he made the point, he said, I don't think people understand what is gonna to happen to them. I really don't. And it's true. So who's to blame for that, Sean, in your opinion, for this, what we're seeing now? I'd say the political firmament in general, across all of, of, of Europe. Putin has always been, for want of a better word, the enemy. It's not like last week he lost his temper and changed his mode of behavior. He's been like that for a while. And I'm not sure why they thought it'd be any different. You know, it's like, I, when I was a youth worker, I dealt with a lot of gangs. And it'd be like one gang saying to another gang, here, you have our weapons. You hold our weapons and then let's negotiate. It, well, they have all the aces. And, they have, and, and what's important is they have a very fundamental ace, a very powerful ace. And this idea that the rest of the world will just hang back while we deal with that. No, if we don't buy that stuff, fine, somebody else will buy it. So Putin's not poor because somebody else is buying that gear. And if you run another country, I remember somebody saying to me, imagine having 145 million mouths to feed. Of course you're going to buy Putin's gas. Who cares what, what they think in Westminster or what they think in Islander? Nobody cares because you're looking at 145 million people you need to feed. And, and, that, and that's what we're seeing now. And I think in the Western world, in Europe in particular, you know, from the Second World War to now, we felt like we'd answered the international... Um, system of behaviour. We felt like we were so financially and militarily powerful that everybody would just do this as we said. And in our very honest way, we were all also sticking to the rules. We, it's not like we we're saying you do that and we did it. We're all going to stick to the rules. No, we're not. It doesn't work like that. The human condition doesn't do that. And what Westerners had, had started to do is, is assume that people elsewhere in the world felt the same about the outcome, felt the same about the future. No. And I remember when they asked the Chinese, is either the interior minister or the energy minister or something like that, you know, about um, his vision zero for 2050 and all the rest of that. And he just turned around and said, you had 100 years of the Industrial Revolution. It's our turn. And no matter how much warm, sweet words come out of China, no matter how much they're changing, because they'll change at quite a pace, yeah? That's their driving force. They're going to have their 100 years again, Rich. Now, if they can do that and be green, fine. But if they can't, for them, fine as well. And we see that. I, I remember telling a green activist who was saying the government's terrible. And I said two things. This conservative government has spent more on green relatively than any other European government. Our CO2 output is more than, is less than half of what Germany is, right? So I, I don't agree with that. And secondly, we're less than 1% of the world's CO2, CO2 output. If we turned off everything in Britain yesterday, it would make no difference. And then she said that classic thing of, oh, but we should be leading the way. I said, they don't care what we're doing. <laughs> Some of them are doing, uh, uh, you know, on a short, pure cash basis, are doing better than we do, do. China is spending more on it, but obviously they've got more to do. Yeah, the Americans probably as well. But at no point in any meeting of any significance have they said to themselves, what are they doing in these? <laughs> they don't. They don't care. Mm. They don't care. And, and unless people understand that we have to secure 
the poor people where we are, use some of our financial might to help the poor people elsewhere in the world, drive the conversation without the idea that people are going to follow us, because that, to other people, also feels like colonialism. Mm -hmm. um, we, we will make no decent impact for the world. Mm. The thing is, Sean, is that the thing that I'm worried about is that we just keep kicking this can down the road, though, don't we? That's the problem. We're continuing to kick it down the road and nobody wants to have the very difficult conversation. You're completely right. But what I will say, the history of this country needs must. We will reach a point where we need to do it and we will do it. And I, I spoke to a, a group of kids at a bus stop and this boy was telling me about, yeah, but like the world's in a mad state, all over, bruv, this, that and the other. And I was like, L let me tell you something. Let me, I want to give you a scenario. He said, go on then. I said, what do you think it felt like just before the start of the Second World War? So not only did they think the world was over, they then had a war, war a world war, and quite frankly, it was over. He said, yeah, what, what's that mean? I said, but they recovered. In fact, they recovered to a spectacular level. If you'd said to the people who went through the Second World War that we as a nation, their grandchildren and great-grandchildren would be in the condition they're in now, they wouldn't have believed you. The point being this, the human spirit is resilient. Needs must will act when we want to act. The one thing where the green lobby are correct, yeah, we've got to start having the conversations and actions quickly. And I think those things will happen. But the problem is because we punish politicians who tell us the truth, mm. because we have a lot of the press are all sort of in extreme boxes. So you're, 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 you're a guardian reader and everybody's evil is on the right and we must sell our children and make the world green. Or you're on the right, these people are stupid and we should frack and nuclear and everything right here, right now. Because we can't have nuanced, um, complicated and developmental and resolved conversations in the middle, that's what's slowing us down. And, and the other thing as well, how finance, everything has become financial. So my reverence for entrepreneurs comes from the fact that if you go back 50, 80, 100, 150 years, entrepreneurs produced things and employed people. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying the service economy is ridiculous, but what we've done with the service economy is made everything about the end product, the finance, the profit. And when you build a business, it has a much bigger social footprint than when you just finance. It's fine. And what finance did, finance in the Western world, and particularly in this country, has been so successful, it sucked a lot of the talent. So there's people in finance now who, in a century gone by, would have been an engineer, would have mm -hmm. been a, 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 a doctor, would have, but now they're in finance because they thought, well... Well, most of the astrophysicists that we produce end up going into the city. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's a shame because it means they're not answering some of the other big problems that we as a country and we as a world face. And... Do you think that is also part of the problem, Sean, in that this is my opinion, and tell me what you think. I'd say that our calibre of politicians are some of the weakest I've ever seen in my 40 years on this planet. So if you think about the Thatchers, if you think about the Churchills, if you think about you know, the former big beast of politics. Well, even Blair and Brown's yeah. gigantic compared yeah. to what we've got but, now. But, but the reason, there's two things I'd say. I think every generation laments the people it's stuck with. Like Churchill, it doesn't matter where you are, Churchill did massive things right, massive things wrong, but he was massive for the country, mm -hmm. yeah? At the time, they treated him like he was an idiot. I mean, they got rid of him once, <laughs> you know what I mean? So nobody loves the politicians they have, you know, and, and that's, that's just the, the human nature. 
I think the other thing as well, often a big problem gives you a big hero. If your biggest problem is what colour is your new car, you're not a hero in your home. If your biggest problem is you're poor and you get that job, you're a hero. And, and you, can, you can scale that up, can't, can't you? So I think actually going forward, we're probably likely to see more substantial politicians because we are have more substantial issues to, 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 deal, to deal with. Love Boris or hate Boris, his response to the Ukraine was a big deal. It was a big deal. And even if you don't believe it, the people of Ukraine believe it, which makes it real. <laughs> do, 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 do you see what I mean? It, 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 it's, it's, a big, it's a big deal. So we'll, we'll see. And I think if Liz's, the hope for Liz is that she makes enough of a change in the personnel for something different to happen. I think sometimes the, 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 the immediate history of the Conservative Party has been apologising for not being left-wing enough. Whereas Liz seems like she's going to be a conservative and can convince you that you should join in or not. It's a different, it, it feels like a different paradigm. Sean, you mentioned Ukraine. Do you think that was a wake-up call that the West needed to realise this airy-fairy world that you were talking about, how everyone's going to... No, I don't think it was a wake-up call because I haven't woken up. You are, but most people were not. No, no, no. I want to be very clear. It's not the wake-up call that the West needed because they didn't respond to it. Absolutely, it's a wake-up call, but they needed to front Putin up properly. Like, and, you don't think we've done enough? No. no. What, what? Well, you could, well, Putin's still going. Putin, 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 he needs... Look, the Putin thing for me is, is powerful because Putin... Treating Putin like, like he's some crazy moron is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. He's been looking in this direction for a long time. Some of the failing has been on our part. We've kind of antagonised the man. He said, don't come east. We promise not to come east, and then we go east. So he responded... And, and, I mean, in his mind, that's a huge justification for his behaviour. Mm. I'd argue they've probably done it anyway, but that's... He, he can, he'd be sitting in a meeting and said, but you said you weren't going to come east. What, what am I to do? So, so away he goes. And I... Putin was asked, how would he defeat the West? Now, if Putin had said, I don't want to defeat the West, that's ridiculous, then our reaction would be fine. But he said, oh, no. He didn't say that. He said, I don't need to defeat the West. They'll defeat themselves. And what that comment shows you is he's interested in the West being defeated. So are China and other places amongst in, in, in the world. And our response has made that, it has kept that issue live. It's kept it going. It's made it real, if, if, if you see what I mean. And, and Putin doing what he's doing in the way in which he's doing, if he gets the outcome that he wants, will strengthen his position. And clearly we want to weaken his position. And we'll have to see, and then of course, there's the ripple effect. If you're China, you're probably thinking, let me see how they respond. If there's a strong response, I might have to take my foot off the gas. If there's a weak response, I'll charge straight through. The, 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 the Belt and Brace thing, what it's called, that China are doing now, I mean, that- Belt and Road. Belt and Road, excuse me. That is a really aggressive move. I mean, short of a, a military attack, that's the single most aggressive thing you can I'm do. Ju I'll just pause you right there. Could you just explain to people who don't know about it, what it is and also why it's so aggressive? So China have taken much of their huge financial power and they've, they've decided to connect countries to China, which gives them control over those countries financially. And let's be clear, some of the contracts they're signing with, with you know, countries in Africa, countries in the West Indies, um, Sri Lanka, all these countries tie them, tie those countries to China and Chinese control. I mean, there's parts of, of the world where they're deliberately trying to 
push out Western nations and block them in or, 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 or circle us in. Um, half the reason they haven't been, they haven't completed that is because nations like India have now had to sort of push back because India is a huge superpower in its own right and simply can't accept that. But the West effectively financed that. We owe tons of money to China where we should have probably built that financial partnership elsewhere in the world with people who are much more aligned with our thinking, who are much less out to dominate the world. I think the difference between India and China say, India wants to be a big, powerful country. They don't want to be your boss. China wants to be your boss. It's, it's a very different thing. Mm -hmm. thing. And just one tiny example. So China are building railways in the world, right? And if you're one of those smaller nations that's taken on the Chinese finance, they've financed you, signed you up to an expensive deal. But here's the real thing that shows you where China's headspace are. They've made the gauge of the railways unique. So when you renew your stock, you have to go back to China. And what they're trying to do, quite successfully to my mind, is build dependency on them. And that kind of international control will mean they can do all kinds of things. It's why Taiwan is constantly worried about its status because China is showing that it's on the front foot. And then you look at things like the development of, of supersonic weapons, nuclear weapons, the size of their Navy, they are, I'd argue they're being aggressive now, but they're certainly giving themselves the ability to be far more aggressive in the future. Hey Francis, what do you think is the best way to advertise a business? That's easy. All you need to do is spend shed loads of cash on an advert that's gonna be promoted on a dying medium light TV. Then simply sit back and watch all your hard earned money disappear down the toilet. What about advertising with trigonometry? Why would I do that when I can advertise on ITV3 for the measly sum of 20 grand and be watched by six people? Because Trigonometry now has over 350,000 subscribers across the different platforms and gets 2 million views and downloads a month? That's right. You can place an advert with us and we'll promote your brand on one of our episodes. Your advert will be written by two professional comedians. Yeah, that's right. We're hiring two professional comedians. <laughs> Where we make our ads funny and engaging to the point where some people say the ads are their favourite parts of the show. Yeah, we probably shouldn't admit that, mate. All you need to do is contact us on marketing at triggerpod.co.uk. That's marketing at triggerpod.co.uk. Advertise with us and we'll get your business cancelled. Sean, let's come back to Ukraine, though, because you said we should have fronted up to Putin more. In the past, and look, in 2014, the game was very clear. Anyone who was paying attention would, would have known this was going to happen later because he was just testing the waters in 14, right? But what about now? Are we doing everything we should be? Are we doing too much, too little? I, 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 I think we're doing too little. I think we're basically... If you look at Russian history, any war that Russia has won has been for attrition. And this, the longer we just where we are, right, Putin wins and he knows that. He is much more invested in winning that than we are in not losing, if, if, if you see what I mean. We have to show that we're prepared to really push back. By energy dependency of some of the major European powers, France and particularly Germany, means that we just can't. We, 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 have, we, have, we, we have lost before the shooting started in, in some sense. We'd have to be really brave to win anyway. And that's why I say to people who are like, you know, real sort of liberal softies, yeah, they don't think like us. They're not like you. They don't just want everybody to get on and have a lovely time. They want control. And whatever they're going to do with the control, 
who knows, but they want control. And ignoring them, um, assuming that they'll stop, is giving them that control. Well, as a Russian, I can tell you that's 100% true. And by the way, it's probably true of almost everybody in the world outside yeah. the Anglosphere, pretty yeah, much. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. in the Anglosphere, we have a an agreement, and we're comfortable with our agreement, and, and, and that's fine. I, it, it, the mind boggles as to why we think everybody else will be comfortable with our agreement. It just, I don't get it. Sean, you've got this lovely down-to-earth manner about you, and I think it it comes from you know, the way, the way you grew up, your experiences, working with gangs. What did you learn when, when, when you were working with gangs? Because when most people think of gangs, they think of, you know, I mean, you could say older people, West Side Story, but we've, it's a media image of a gang. It's not actually what a gang is like. So, so, so what I'm gonna, I think how I'm gonna answer this is the emotional piece. And, and I'll try to give an example. Be clear, a gang is a business. Yeah, it's a business. The currency is money. The difference is um, psychological bullying. Yeah, and high levels of physical risk. Yeah, I remember speaking to the police minister. He's not the police minister now. Kitmore House. He, he, he's moved on. But when I realised that he would be good, he started to get it. Is when he said to me, "Sean, what I'm planning to do do is disrupt the business." Of my, he used the words business model of this gang. We were talking about particular gangs in London. And I said to him, now you're talking. yeah, Because what we've been focusing on is the crime. That is now you stop a gang. Gangs work because they make money. They, you know, you, I remember talking to a kid who's trying to explain to everyone about um, recruitment to the gang. He said, you got these elders who recruit youngers. And they were like, really? You know, is it because your family's involved? He said, no, that's their job. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, look, people who run gangs find young, attractive people, pay them to go and find young, vulnerable people to be foot soldiers. And they were like, but Sean, that, that's, I said, listen, short of writing a job description, that's exactly what they're doing. They're driving around in their cars and they think, that kid's good looking, he's got the gift of the gab. If I give him a grand a month, he can make me 10 grand a month. It's mm. pure business. And, when you are in and around gangs for a bit, you, 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 some people in the gang understand that. They tend to be the sharper ones and tend to rise. And the other ones are just there for poor emotional reasons. It can sometimes be dangerous not to join your local gang. I, I was asked to come and speak to a boy um, in Croydon who had, who had got involved in a knife incident. Crushing at school, really good at school, never had no plea. And they were like, what happened? So I went to speak to him. And I was like, this is a real change in your behavior. He's like, Sean, bruv, it's the only way to make sure they leave me alone. I said, well, like, what, does your local gang have beef or something? He said, no, nah, it's not a beef thing. It's not like I'm going out and other kids are seeing me from a estate and say, rah, let's get him. It's the kids on my estate. They're basically saying you're with us or you're against us. So it was like much less physically dangerous to be with them. And people need to understand the complexity and quite frankly, the, the, sophistication of gangs. And, and when you understand that they're human-driven organizations in the same way that Google or Apple is, yeah, it helps you understand why. Some people will always concentrate on the emotional piece, which is very big. You know, they'll say, because it gives you membership of something bigger than you, and all of that's true. But you need to look at the whole spread of gang. And I'll tell you a small story. 
I was with David Cameron once and we were going to a meeting. And I don't want to give the impression I hung around with David Cameron. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't. You, you know, when I worked with PM, you could go like months without seeing him, like months. But we went to a meeting and he sort of asked for a briefing what's going on. All right, we go to Treasury and I said, like, we're going to get jumped here. He said, why do you say that, Sean? I said, because, you know, when I used to do youth work, I used to do gangs, you see. I said, I said when people are going to jump, you don't really look you in the eye. And these, these dudes are not looking at us in the eye. And you're the PM, like, let you look in the eye. Mm. He said, yeah. And I said, they're all being like, Overly polite and, and, and reserved, if, 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 if you know what I mean. And that's when people spring stuff on you. Anyway, we came out of the meeting and he said to me, so Sean, it looks like we've just been jumped. <laughs> <laughs> I, was on, I told you, David. And he said, where'd you get that from? I said, you know the funny thing, like, David, it's about gang warfare. He said, what do you mean? I said, this is just a different gang. They're very clean shaven, well-educated, but they're a gang. They're operating in an emotional space to promote their collective belief and, and forward their collective wants. And it's, that's a gag mentality. Mm. The only thing is you can guarantee none of these people are gonna stab you. And he, he was quite fascinated. He said, that's, he said, it's really funny. And I, and I was trying to show him that he actually had much more knowledge about gangs than he believed he did because Eaton and all that sort of, which group you're a member of, who undermines who, who promotes who, much of that is gang. The, the, the special and horrific thing about gang is bullying and violence. But most of it, the personal, emotional politics, people would understand. Sean, you talk about disrupting the business of gangs and mostly that's drugs. Oh, yeah. One of the things that I disagreed with you most profoundly about was when you were running for mayor, you you were very strong uh, on the enforcement and punishment of drug users side of things. Whereas we've had a lot of people on the show, people like David Nutt, for example, who, who argue very strongly that the best way to disrupt that is to decriminalize the use of drugs, to get people who are addicted treatment and to attack that problem from that end and to take the money out of the business of drugs. What do you say to that? So, so let's separate this out. What I did was focus on um, white collar drug use. Yeah. Mm. So I went on a building site and his geese are there and, and I, I was laughing like, cause he, he looked like a boy I grew up with. And I said, boy, you like a boy I grew up with who smokes too much weed and we laughed. He's like, no, it's smoking in my life. He said, anyway, the drug test was all the time cause I drive the crane. I said, yeah. And I thought, hold on a second. Why do you get drug tested? Yeah. Cause you drive the crane and the guy doing um, everybody's pension doesn't get drug tested. Mm -hmm. That's not right. And actually he buys shitloads of drugs which is driving the drug scene in, in London. He should get tested too. I then found out American banks regularly do it. So I just made that suggestion because for me, it's a matter of parity. It's a matter of fairness. If the working man in the streets getting drug tested, so should the, the, the one who works in a bank. That's the thing. And, and there's lots of um, what I see as benefits that flow from that because drug use destroys your mental health. It creates a market that my people are actually dying for. You know, they're literally getting murdered over it. So I was right. Let me tell you why, David, I'm sure he's a lovely man, but let me tell you why he's entirely wrong. Two really big reasons. Everywhere in the world, they've liberalized drugs, yeah. What's happened is the legal market has not gone away. It's actually grown. What's happened is you get a parallel legal and illegal drug market go together. And because drugs are legal here, you then start to lose people into the illegal market. Because let's be clear, imagine you legalized weed in this country, right? Marijuana to the uninitiated. Um, the government cannot sell you skunk. They cannot sell you something that's going to blow your mind, destroy your lungs, um, destroy your mental health and kill you. So what they'll do is- They can sell you vodka. Vodka yeah, is more harmful. Yeah, but vodka takes time and vodka had history on its side. Yeah, if you invented, if you invented liquor tomorrow, 
yeah, it wouldn't be legalised in the way it is now. And if you want to talk about alcohol, what's the single most dangerous drug in, in, in circulation on the planet today? Legal. A legal drug. Any drug. Legal or otherwise. I would have thought something like heroin or crystal no, meth. alcohol. Yeah. For every one heroin addict, addict there's probably 150. Well, it's because alcohol is legal in most exactly. places. But right. that's the point. It's legal. That's the point I'm trying okay. to make. It's legal. It's easily available. Price pushed down. Yeah. All the rest of that. What would an entrepreneur do if they could legalize weed? They'd push the price down. What is the main driver, if the only driver around drug consumption? Price. So this is another reason for not legalizing. Well, I, I don't go out and, and get drunk because it's cheaper. I, I go, I, I'll go and have a pint because it's a Friday night and I want to hang and out with my afford, mates. And you can afford a pint. And right. the reason you drink the amount of pints you drink is because they don't cost 50 quid a time. If they cost 50 quid a time, you drink less pints. That's a fact. Okay. Yeah. So the point is this. So you then you legalize, you get this legal market, you get an illegal market, and the illegal market grows because people move from something that doesn't really affect them to something that kicks their ass. And drugs is about an effect. So you have to go in that direction. That's my first thing. Yeah, It mm -hmm. does not eliminate the legal market. Mm -hmm. And the legal market has all manner of sex trade involved, violence involved, non-taxpaying. And I bring up the non-taxpaying bit because the other thing is, right, I grew up with a lot of people who dealt drugs, like mostly just so they didn't have to pay for their own. One or two people I knew along the way were proper drug dealers. And I remember bumping into one of them and we were talking about legalization. And he said to me, Sean, do you think I'm gonna stop selling drugs just because it's legal? And he said, are you mad? Of course I'm not. He said, I'll just sell more. He says, for instance, the people who supply me, yeah, supply me at a very low rate. A legal business could never match what I'm getting it for. I'll start selling. I'll start selling. And how many legal businesses are going to question me is where I got my shit from? And I use those words because the words he used. Where I got my shit from? No, I don't care. It's making money. I don't care. So come back to the illegal market. We had prohibition in this country and we're prohibition in the United States. There's been a lot of Hollywood movies made about that. Is there an illegal market in alcohol in America that's worth talking about? No, but what happens with alcohol is very important that you compare apples and apples. What happened with alcohol, it became legal, right? It was, it was then pursued by the biggest, at the time, some of the biggest businesses in the world. They pushed the price down so far, it became culturally acceptable and everybody drank it. Would you want that situation with weed? I'd rather, more, I'd rather people smoke weed than drank alcohol, that's for sure. That might, that's a whole other debate, but the point is, alcohol is um, much less uh, physically effective, um, defective rather than 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 than, than weed. Like you, people, there's people now watching this who have a glass of wine every night. It probably make them live longer. Yeah, there's people who watching now who collect whiskey, drink the whiskey, happy, fine. There's very few people who smoke weed where it hasn't had an effect on them. There's very few people who smoke the same amount of weed now that they did when they started. Yeah, and why would you roll the dice with um, young people's health? And I give you something that's a bit more of an analogy because it's modern. Look at vaping, right? The amount of young people that are vaping is skyrocketed, skyrocketed. Why? Because it's cheap, because it's marketed to them. It's marketed to them. They can get hold of it. And let's be clear, they're not, it's illegal for them to have, but they can get hold of it. So if you give people cheap, legal drugs, they will smoke cheap legal drugs, which destroys their mental health, destroys their lungs, generates mad amounts of crime. Because remember that what we don't know about alcohol is how much crime, you know, theft,
burglary alcohol drives, right? We probably know a little bit less about that than we do about how much um, like weed, class A drugs drives, yeah? You'd massively be ramping that up. And that's before you get into the real thing for me, mental health. Sean, this is my. This is why people go, "Are you a conservative?" I'm not because what I find funny about conservatives is you guys. You you're all into human nature until it hits things like this, right? Because here's the human nature argument on on this issue: is people are always going to do something to change to alter their state of mind. Agreed. Right. Agreed. And to me, it's about what is it that you're allowing them to consume, if we're talking about the level of the government. That, that you're doing. And as you said yourself, alcohol is the most damaging. It's because it's the most widely used, but also it is much worse for you than something like weed. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. No, it's not. Of course it is. No, it's not. Physically, it's much worse no, it's for not. you. It's alcohol not. No, it's not. Alcohol is. No, it's not. Look, to, to, to my brother died of alcoholism. Let's be my, my brother drank himself to death. It took a very, very long time for that to happen. And the reason it took so long um, is because alcohol effects on you is lower level. Basically, your body can deal with it for longer. I was a youth worker for 30 years. I watched boys destroy their mental health by puffing. And see, so there's two levels of destroying mental health. One was psychosis. Like, yeah, I, I can I can remember I can think of at least four individuals that I directly worked with, who this is a word a, a sort of street term used, who are now walking up and down the high street with straws up their nose. Like, you know, you know, visibly in mental distress, right? And then there's a much, much bigger crowd that lost any ability to push on in life. So they're what I call the four o'clock boys. They stay up till four, sleep till four. Only action is to come out and get some weed. And I remember I had one boy in particular, right? I, I, I won't, you, I, I, I'll, I'll make up a name for him, right? Called Sufian. And he, um, he'd got in trouble with the police because he stole something. And Sufian's not a thief. He's not a thief, like he wasn't a thief, but he stole something, it's an opportunity he stole it. And I said to him, oh, that's a crackhead move. He freaked, you can't call me, we call me crackhead for, he freaked out at me. I said, Sophian, what are you gonna do with that money? Yeah, like, you know, Sean, like, I'm living in it, I've got things to buy, I've got a little pair, a little rent and all that. I said, what are you gonna do with that money, Sophian? I said, at least 50% of that was gonna end up as weed. And he looked at me, right, he's about, he's about to give me a, both barrels. And then he sort of went, yeah, shit, you're right. And I said, that's why I called it a crackhead move. Because we don't associate weed with poor behavior, we don't link the poor behavior that it drives. When someone takes crack, we link it much more easily, yeah? But we lead. And I said to him, look, your income needs, and I go back to something I said probably half an hour ago, one of the ways to raise your income is to lower your outgoings, yeah? Your income needs are significantly higher. Why? Because you smoke weed. I had another girl that I worked with and her mum was constantly trying to kick out her brother, right? He joined our football team, got into his fitness, stopped puffing, right? So I started bumping his sister every now and then, much less agitated, much less chatting about her brother. I was going to go, yeah, it's all right, she's all right, it's all right, it's good, it's all right. So, I'm like, what's changed? She said, I don't know. And I said to him, what's changed? He said, yeah, I'll pay rent. <laughs> so, I said, so I said, boy, you got, I used to run a job club. So I said, boy, you got a job. He said, no, 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 but I, I, he said, I've just got a little cash. He said, like, I go in the house, I pay rent. My mum treats me like a big man because I'm paying rent, so I'm cool, she's good, but it's cool. So I said to him, how you pay rent? And he said, yeah, because I don't bun anymore. I don't bun. See, and we're not, we're not making those connections. And I make those connections because I saw it happening. And the only difference between me and the people I grew up with is I don't smoke and don't drink. That's all. And I used to ask, I used to ask a couple of questions. 
Like, why? I'm, I'm but aren't you making my point, which is you're voluntarily choosing not to smoke or drink. And Drinking you, is legal. Yeah, and you make my point, right? Human <laughs> nature. You said, because some of are not into human nature, but human nature exists. And the yeah. point is this, at some point, yeah, you have to intervene because we all pay the bill, yeah, when so many people have a, 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 a breakdown. Like, yeah, you, I agree so with you on we, the mental we'll health. In, we'll, I agree we'll with all you end on up that. paying for the mental health. We'll all end up paying for the physical health in the NHS, and we'll all end up paying for the police health. We'll, we'll pay. Uh, what I don't understand is in, in, in a world where alcohol is legal, and it's perfectly acceptable in this country. And as a Russian, it, even as a Russian, it boggles my mind how much drink, how much people drink here. But, but right, uh, that's perfectly socially acceptable. Your guy from the building site who gets drug tested every day, could be smashing 10 pints every night. Yeah, but you can't come to work drunk. That's the first thing. You can't come to work drunk, but you could be smashing 10 pints hey, every hey, night, he, waking up the next day and going to work. Yeah, and he could say right? to his boss, I sunk 10 last night, and they'd all laugh and high, high five. But the difference with alcohol is, this is a very important point. When somebody compares that, and now I know they're desperately just trying to legalize drugs, alcohol is historic. When we invented alcohol, right, we thought people were witches. In fact, we invented alcohol before we invented witches. It, it's, alcohol is literally ancient. We didn't know. And I go back to your point, which I think is very true. People will always seek to get out of their mind somehow, right? Yeah. Some people do base jumping. Some people drink whiskey. Yeah, right. You can't take it all away. So we historically have alcohol. Let's try to control that, keep it little not and dealing it. We don't need to add to that part. That would just be my take. Don't, don't get me wrong. I've got with a lot of people who puff all the while. Yeah, and they're fine. They're fine. To a certain extent, leave them to it, but don't grow that group because an exponential growth in that group means an exponential growth in people whose lives are destroyed because of it. And Sean, what would you say? We touched on it briefly about the illegal activity. By legalizing these drugs, you take it away from the gangs, you disrupt their business model, and you know you can tax it, you make income off it. Surely it's a win-win. No, it isn't. You legalize it, you don't take it away from the gangs. What you do is give them a much, much bigger market. Nowhere in the world has the illegal market gone away. What you then do is, is you provide a waiting room for their activity. So if I'm smoking with the government basically give me menful cigarettes, right? I then meet said drug dealer in a rave or my local park, and he says, you smoke that crap, I'll give you something that really set you alight. Oh my gosh, yes, you go there. You go there, and that's before you get into would drug dealers then try to seek out legitimate business and short circuit that situation? Like, bruv, you see how much you're paying for your weed? Yeah, I'll get you weed cheaper than that. Come on, The tax man don't know. And remember, bruv, like, weed's a cash business, yeah? How's the government know how much you, you put through the doors this week? They ain't got a clue, bruv. I'll get you weed. Don't buy that. You're buying stuff from Unilever when you can buy stuff from Derek. Come on, man. Derek set you up properly. That's what would happen. And, 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 and anybody who doubts me, look what happens to all the calves in Amsterdam, what happened in, um, in Canada, all those places, that's what happens. You know, drug dealers are some of the most inventive, fearless entrepreneurs in the world. I wish it wasn't the way, but they are. They are clever people. And, and, they was, and they won't cease to be clever just because you've legalized. So let's find a way to wrap this up then, Sean, in a way that we're not still arguing. Uh, but I actually really respect the conversation and enjoy it. How do we solve the problem of, I mean, because look, from the sort of like middle-class suburbia point of view, the way London looks to a lot of people now is, it's just endless, it's people running around with fucking machetes around the streets of London, right? Like how, how do we deal with that? Look, 
it is still a small enough group of people doing that, mostly around street life, drug goings on. I notice I didn't use the word gangs. Gang behavior is part of it, but it isn't all of it. I, I don't want anybody to just write off, it's just gangs, there's more to it than that. Um, but the number is still small enough for us to get on top of it. Okay. London is still one of the safest, biggest cities in the world, that is a fact. Uh, um, but boy, it needs to be safer, for sure, right? Particularly for people who live here. If you live here and you live in certain places in London, it's very easy to get caught up in it. So we do need, need to work on it. And in, in, in it, 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 the technical approach would be this. We need to have a plan to get more and more weapons off the street. We need to make it that if you've got a knife, you feel that somebody's gonna find out, you feel nervous about it. That's the first thing, because that just lowers the opportunity to, for people to be stabbed. It lowers the opportunity for something to escalate and a stabbing happened, right? I, I dealt with a boy recently who had stabbed someone and he said to me, wish he never had his knife on him. I said, why? He said, without the knife, sure, nothing would happen. And he said, now I'm sitting in jail, like, it's a madness. I said, but you stabbed someone. He said, yeah, I know, Sean, but he's saying, I'm having to think how I, he said, in a way, Sean, I did it to myself which was a mad admission, you know what I mean? And he said that. So that, that's sort of where I'm coming from there. Like get those weapons off the street. The other pieces as well, you have certain communities who've been under such pressure for such a long time, who always talked about as victims, who have, who have been victimized, so have become victims. We need to give them a break. And a break generally means their young people having some kind of future. And I want to be really clear about this, it's not youth work. I've been a youth worker for 30 years. In my opinion, it's employment, yeah? There is no silver bullet to this. Youth work is brilliant. I believe in youth work. I've given more than half my life over to youth work, yeah? But youth work is like an entertainment. Yes, it can do serious things. I've done family therapy, I've run job clubs. It can do serious things. But what you want is people to be independent of youth work. If you look at the communities doing the best in London, their children don't do youth work, they don't go to youth work. They do other things. So youth work needs to be as a channel to job. And I just say a job, a job is not be all and end all anything, but it does some very important things. It gives people a wider network. It gives them access to finance and it's wonderful for their confidence. The, 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 I, I've talked about white middle class, let's be very clear. I respect the middle classes because what they do is take responsibility, work. And even the guilt part is them trying to sort of say to people, uh, we want to help, we've done well, we want to see you do well, I, I get it. But ask yourself this, are you preventing a group of people developing the skills to have something to teach their children? You know I mean, are you trying to parachute yourselves in? You know what I mean? How comes poor immigrant communities have done completely well before they got here? They, like our parents done a massive thing making the transition here. It's a massive thing. They're strong communities. What they need is opportunity. They don't need to be um, patronized. They need opportunity. And, and then when you talk about opportunity, people then have to realize opportunity, um, equality of opportunity is different to equality of outcome. Equality of outcome is impossible. Yeah, right. You know, your cameraman's a better cameraman than me. He will get that cameraman job. Yeah, right. So what you're trying to do is give people some kind of roadmap to some kind of opportunity that they believe in, they can move on. Because what that does, that transforms their community over the long term. And then I have things that I'm particularly passionate about that other people are um, somewhere on a spectrum. I think, for instance, the prevalence of marriage is needs to be up. And someone said to me, it's just a piece of paper. And yeah, it is just a piece of paper, but it is a fact that married people live longer, 
are happier, their children have better mental health, is a fact. The institution of marriage does something to somebody's expectations and their output. So we should, we should do more than that. And of course, where children are concerned, married people make more money, you know, even more than cohabiting people. And married people break up three times less than cohabiting people. That's really important. And, and when you speak to children, the biggest thing that drives their mental health is their um, orientation of their parents. Their parents together, their mental health is better. That's not my opinion, it happens to be a fact. And I don't say that to make people feel bad. I don't say that to people have to stay together, don't stay together. One of the things I think that makes marriage valuable is no fault divorce. If I had a magic wand, one of the first things I'd fix is you should be able to divorce someone and don't have to find who was at fault. You shouldn't stay with people if you don't want to. But if more people had an expectation to stay together, more people would stay together. It's gonna to sound bizarre, but Finland have shown us that. The government is supporting marriage in many ways. Their marriage rates have gone through the roof and their social output is also going through the roof. But that's just something that I'm, remember I come from a single parent family. So that's, and, and I've watched my community just be destroyed by drugs and, and, and poor educational attainment and, and gangs and, 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 and fatherlessness. And my overriding thing I'd say last is, do not rely on politicians to fix your world. I know you think you're not, but every time you ask what the government are doing, that's basically doing that. Try to find something that in your personal life, in your family life and your broader community life does something positive. And beyond that, join a civic organisation, a charity, a think tank that's doing the thinking. That's how we fix the country, not waiting for, the, for politicians. Politicians are very important. They have something to do and, and, we, and we have the right to push and, and, and cajole them to do it and do that. But, do, but don't rely on that. And the last thing I'd say is be wary of what you read and who you believe. One of the best conversations I've had recently is a woman who only knows about me, in her words, through The Guardian, right? So we had this long conversation, you know, up and down, we disagreed, we agreed. I mean, we literally hugged at the bus stop. She said, oh, this has been stimulated. You know, she said, you're a teeny bit wrong about it. And mm -hmm. I said, I know, you're a teeny bit, I mean, we high-fived, hugged, it was wonderful. And she said, now I know where I know your name. I read about you. She said, you're the guy I ran for Mayor of London. So remember, we spoke for like a clear 25 minutes before we reached that point. And she said, you're nothing like how they painted you in the press. And the one thing I'd say to the country, we are being so handled by the press. Now, of course, I'm about to tell you we're being particularly handled by the left-wing press. <laughs> that that's my particular sort of orientation, but we're being handled by the press. And the best people in the world, the most formative people in the world are the people who question, the people who test. Not cynics, but triers. And I met a Liverpudlian the other day and he gave me a term, GLT. And I was like, what's that? He said, God loves a trier. He said, get out there and keep trying. And that's what you've got to do. You've got to keep trying to grow your, your intellect, your physical self, your, your relationships around you, grow the young people around you. And so I keep having the last thing. This is my last, last thing. <laughs> Someone said to me, what, you know, Sean, you did youth work for years. What, what, what's the best thing you can do to, for a young person? Inspire them. A young person who's inspired will never need pushing, never need, and you don't know. And I'm trying to do my own son now and my daughter. It's been a bit easier with my daughter because she's 15. She's got a clear vision of the world. My son's only 13. But if you have any young people in your world, help them figure out what they like and what they enjoy. Slightly two different things. Mm -hmm. Because enjoy, for me, has a little bit more activity. You're, you're doing a thing. Because if you can help a child figure that out, you can help them build a future.
Mm. You know, you can get them to turn up for themselves. But I'm going to stop because I just keep going. <laughs> Sean, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If pleasure. people want to find you online, where is the best place to do that? I am Sean Bailey AM on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, my, my Twitter has a little bit of politics on it because, you know, I'm in politics. My Instagram is just me and my kids doing stuff. But it's much more funny. I'm nice into action there. And I'm out. I'm in the press. I do GB News regularly. I'm on the Dan Wooten show. I'm very regularly. And I just try to keep in the public eye and have the conversation. And I'm constantly looking for ways to help people be independent. That, that for me, is, is the goal. Well, Sean, we're going to ask you a couple of questions for all our supporters that only they will get to see. But as always, the last question we always ask on the show is, what is the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? Um, the state of education. We are not, we use school to train and to be, training is different to education. And we no longer use university to discuss. We are teaching our children to define themselves as one singular thing and then to hate anybody that isn't them. And that is the quickest way to destroy your country. Very well said. Sean, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Oh, Take care and see you soon, guys. Will Sean be standing for mayor again? He did better than expected last time. Uh, or will he be looking to run for MP, maybe re replacing Brosendale? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.